Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the latest episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I am your host, Julia Kablinska, and today I will be talking to Jieli about her new book, Cinematic Gorillas, Propaganda, Projectionists, and Audiences in Socialist China, which is hot off the presses at Columbia University Press just this month. The book describes the Chinese media revolution, namely the enormous media project undertaken by the communist state to solder a dispersed and heterogeneous populace into the revolutionary masses. Li shows how in the face of post-war material constraints and technological shortages, cultural workers and audiences became human components of audiovisual media networks that connected and built the new nation. Through a careful reading of archival sources and oral interviews, Li excavates two historically grounded terms, the guerrilla and the spirit medium, to develop a theoretical framework that explains how cinema and propaganda functioned in the socialist state. Her chapters explore the top-down visions of, of the cinema image economy, including the directives laid down by Mao and Jiang Qing, as well as the grassroots labor of projectionists and the memories of film workers and audiences who, respectively, struggled to contain and enjoyed the polysemy inherent in socialist film experience. I am very eager to hear Jieli tell us more about this fascinating text. Before we do that, let me introduce our guest. Uh, Jieli is Professor of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard. She is a scholar of literary, film, and cultural studies, whose research interests center on the mediation of memories in modern China. Her first book, Shanghai Holmes, Palimpsests of a Private Life, excavates a century of memories embedded in two alleyway neighborhoods destined for demolition. Her second monograph, Utopian Ruins, a Memorial Museum of the Mao Era, explores contemporary cultural memories of the 1950s to the 1970s through textual, audiovisual, and material artifacts, including police files, photographs, documentary films, and museums. Li has also co-edited a volume entitled Red Legacies, Cultural Afterlives of the Communist Revolution. She has published widely in edited volumes and leading journals in both film and Chinese studies, including Screen, Grey Room, 20th Century China, and Positions. At Harvard, Li teaches courses on East Asian cinema and Chinese media cultures. She is a recipient of the 2020 Rosalind Abramson Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching, and recognizes which recognizes teachers for excellence and sensitivity in teaching undergraduates. And I could assure you this book will be a good read for undergraduates as long as you hold their hand while you lead them through this landscape, uh, this wild landscape of the socialist cinema experience. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so before we begin with the book, I'd like to remind listeners that they've actually already gotten a sneak peek of her, your work on this podcast. A version of one of the chapters, uh, The Things They Carried, was actually featured in Denise Ho and Jennifer Altahanger's Material Contradictions in Mao's China, which was covered by this podcast a little while ago. I think some of our listeners, uh, especially listeners who are new to publishing and perhaps graduate students who are thinking about how to do that, might be interested in how publishing parts of a larger projects in different contexts, like edited volumes and journals, 
enriches the final monograph. Can you tell us how you came to this project and how the book evolved as you crafted and recrafted chapters in different contexts? Yeah, so I have been working on this book um, for a really long time. And the first time I started to formally write something down was in 2011. And that was in response to an invitation to contribute to an edited volume um, on Chinese cinema. Uh, the, that, that volume actually never came out, but it gave me an opportunity to, to work on the topic of um, film projection and also audience reception. Um, I, I had some family friends who were working as mobile projectionists in the Cultural Revolution, and I heard many interesting stories from my parents and their friends. Um, so when I was uh, starting to work on projectionists, I started to look through historical materials um, and found uh, an amazing magazine called Film Projection, Dianying Fangying, uh, and also tons of local gadgeteers. Um, and it was much more than could fit into a single article. So when as I was writing this article, it turned into this 50-page uh, monster. And I started to think maybe it's not an article, but a, a book. Uh, and I started presenting various iterations and different parts of this project uh, in different conferences and other uh, venues over um, over the years. And the questions and comments I got from the audience really helped uh, shape uh, what actually went into the book. Um, so it, it kind of takes a village to write a book and the gestation of it um, um, was you know, like more than a decade. Um, so the, the piece that you mentioned, uh, mobile projectionists and the things that they carried um, appeared um, in an edited volume um, by Denise Ho and Jennifer Altenhanger. And actually they had held three different uh, workshops or conferences on material culture. Um, uh, that brought together um, interdisciplinary scholars who are working on the PRC. And a lot of the participants really inspired me um, to think about questions I, I didn't really think about before. Um, so um, some asked me about, for example, the, the economics um, of cinema, like who's paying for this, and also the status of cinema as a commodity. Uh, some made me think more deeply about gender or about um, performance and so on. So um, those were mainly China scholars, but I also had the opportunity to give um, presentations at um, cinema media studies um, conferences and, uh, and workshops uh, to audiences who are not familiar with China. Um, but, and they actually pushed me to think a lot more comparatively and theoretically. Uh, how, how, how can I address that kind of multidisciplinary or multi-regional audiences? Um, so um, some of these talks resulted in uh, article, article publications. So I, I did publish a piece um, actually entitled Cinematic Gorillas in Mouse China in, uh, in the journal screen, and then um, another piece on the hot noise of open-air cinema in, in Grey Room. Uh, and the feedback I got from the editors were very helpful uh, in thinking about um, making this relevant to to an audience beyond China studies. Um, uh, great, thank you. Um, so I'm also very curious to know more about the research process. I'm sorry I keep pushing us back from the book itself, but throughout the text, you mentioned working together with the research team, especially it seems in the context of gathering oral interviews and canvassing rural areas in search of sources. It's quite refreshing to me as someone who tends to work alone mm -hmm. to hear about these lively travels with a group of like-minded folks, almost like you're a team of cinematic gorillas 
doing research, right, in uh, rural yeah. China. So can you tell your, our listeners a little bit more about how you designed this research project and what methodologies you mobilized um, and who participated? Yeah, actually, well, one of the reasons why this book took so long is that I really wanted to incorporate uh, field work and oral history interviews um, uh, beyond the kind of historical sources that that were available. And uh, this was maybe like in two, 2013, I actually presented a paper on rural projection based on the written sources I had and also some of the uh, interviews I had conducted with just my parents' friends uh, who were um, mostly like stung youth former Red Guards who went to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution, different parts of China. Um, and then at, at that um, conference, I, I sat uh, next to that, a dinner, actually, sat next to uh, historian uh, Professor Feng Xiaotai from uh, normal, uh, East China Normal University. And he said that, you know, I should do field work in oral history. And, and he mentioned how graduate students um, at uh, his university were collecting oral history and grassroots archival materials. Um, in several provinces, especially in Zhejiang, uh, but also Hubei, on um, uh, various topics that they were working on, professors working on. And so I was really inspired by that suggestion and um, got research funding to hire uh, research assistants to, to visit some of those same sites. Uh, and then, but each of us actually had different kinds of research agenda. So, for example, Professor Feng was working on the history of one prefecture in, in Zhejiang and also economic histories. And um, some graduate students had topics related to, you know, like village drama troops or, you know, Christianity and rural electrification. So we would do interviews together, but we would ask different kinds of questions that were related to our own uh, research projects. Um, but for the, the research on film projectionists per se, actually, um, we often found them by uh, contacting the county film company, uh, like they would be like located often near the Wood County Movie Theater and had uh, the contacts of uh, various veteran projectionists. Um, some of them were receiving pensions uh, still. So they would, um, you know, like ask if anyone would be interested to come and talk to researchers and talk about their experiences. Um, and then, you know, there'd be like a focus group um, interview, um, kind of like around the seminar room or something. And then we had lunch together and we would follow up with the projectionists individually. Um, and then the... Because um, some of the projectionists were younger ones who were still working, uh, we actually got to follow some uh, current uh, mobile projectionists to uh, go to screening on on summer nights to the to the countryside and talk to local audiences, especially elderly audiences, to get a sense of their uh, movie going experiences. And um, and a lot of the people we asked, they were very enthusiastic and nostalgic um, and very happy to share the memories. Um, but one thing I had realized was that um, a lot of the retired projectionists, especially those who are working uh, for their communes rather than hired by the state, um, uh, they uh, a lot of them were not receiving attention. And so they are kind of part of this nationwide petition movement uh, that, you know, asking for 
greater compensation for their labor um, um, in, the, in the socialist years. So it also kind of explained their eagerness and willingness to share their stories, although I wasn't able to help them uh, with the petition or getting more um, support for their old age. Um, but I, I think it, it really influenced the project over time, thinking about how to recenter the human figure in media studies. Um, and I know we, we can talk a little bit more, more about that um, as we get to the chapters. Uh, we certainly will. Uh, but before we get to the human figure, the human yeah. agent, uh, mm -hmm. I want us to lay down a little bit of the theoretical framework that you developed. As I mentioned in my intro, you've identified two terms that are really grounded in Chinese experience, right? The guerrilla warfare yeah. of revolution, and then spirit mediums who are, of course, familiar from Chinese folk religions. And these work as theoretical terms that inform your conceptualization of media networks in socialist China through the figure of these projectionists in particular. Can you tell us what these two terms mean for you and how they interact with each other? Yeah, thanks so much for this question. Yeah, so I think um, because the book is all um, and also engaged with various uh, theories that are developed in a Euro-American context, but I was quite keen to excavate uh, some, you know, some so-called Chinese media theories that might be formulated, you know, by elites. Um, so guerrilla uh, really comes from Mao's writing, guerrilla warfare. Uh, but a lot of it also has to do with the kind of metaphors that I had come across in the um, contemporary reports and also various retrospective memoirs about um, uh, film exhibitions. So projectors and films are likened to guns and bullets that help to occupy the thought front in the countryside and itineraries um, by these um, uh, roving projectionists are called battle lines. And then uh, when they hang up screens, they're saying like they're hanging flags almost in territorial conquests. Or um, um, And then audiences actually also uh, compared uh, these uh, movie teams to Mouse Guerrilla Army, in part because many of the films they showed were about um, revolutionary warfare um, conducted by communist guerrillas in the 1930s and 1940s. So, um, but the way I'm using it in the book is um, in three different senses, right? So the first really just refers to the militants that are in the movies themselves, who also have an impact on how audiences act. They had a major role in militarizing the, the Chinese um, audience in the in this time, even though there was no open war there. Um, and then the second sense of cinematic guerrillas um, um, is um, mobile projectionists, right, who brought films to the countryside, um, especially um, the countryside without electricity, and um, and they were kind of roving and moving um, uh, very much like guerrillas, and also they um, explicitly paid tribute to um, uh, the guerrilla army, even though there were no guerrillas in the 1950s and 70s um, in reality. And then the third sense of cinematic guerrilla refers to moviegoers and audience members who both um, were emulating the girls they saw on screen, but they also came up with um, various subversive interpretations of um, propaganda cinema. 
So, um, so the subtitle of the book is uh, "Propaganda Projectionists and Audiences." They kind of name these three valences um, of cinematic guerrillas. Um, but the second that I actually wanted to have as the title of the book, like the the subtitle of the book, was Maoist propaganda as a revolutionary mediumship. And I had this as a working title for a really long time until it was vetoed um, by the, the publisher's uh, marketing department at the time of production because it thought, they thought that spirit mediumship is quite misleading and it could actually make readers think it's about some or even tarot reading, um, tarot card reading. So so I, I eventually changed it. But, but the idea of revolutionary spirit is uh, is still quite central to um, to the book's um, overall project. So I I put that as the title of the introduction. And what I mean by that is that um, so also three folds, three different like senses of uh, spirit mediumship. Uh, first of all, um, the films meant to propagate uh, the revolutionary spirit or like and often meaning self-sacrificing patriotism. Um, and this discussion of like revolutionary spirit really harkens back to um, even Sun Yat-sen, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao's speeches right from the 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and, and it was um, this revolutionary spirit is promoted in the, uh, in the films um, of the era. Um, and it's even being promoted today. So there's a whole like 100 years of promotion of revolutionary spirit. And that is considered something quite holy as well. Um, and the second sense of spirit mediumship is that um, is, is to point out to the um, not much mediation, but mediumship and uh, projectionists themselves are embodiments of cinema, right? And they also uh, very much served as ritual specialists. Um, so they were not just showing films, but they were hosting these um, events and almost liturgical events where there would be communions with revolutionary martyrs, and um, they were also showing what the future might look like. Uh, a cinema at some point was called Socialist Horizon, like horizon Education, so you can divine the future through these films um, because they were um, people in the uh, villagers in the countryside were watching films about so union about like modernized agriculture and so on um and then um also um because a lot of film screenings were associated with struggle and kind of um almost struggle sessions uh, that um exorcised class enemies um there there is um i also uh, explaining the term spirit mediumship so media reception at this period so this is the third element is that in the countryside local religions and film uh, reception was pretty intertwined, in part because a lot of the screenings took place not inside um, actual, you know, uh, designated cinemas, but rather um, public spaces in villages that used to be spaces of worship, so including, you know, um, ancestral halls or churches or places where temple fairs or temple festivals would be held. So um, a lot of the rituals associated with cinema, um, like it's quite natural when you're watching films in these rich spaces 
also associate cinema with local religions, and uh, there are accounts of how audiences thought that the um, the the film productions themselves were shamans. And um, so, overall, I guess like revolutionary spirit mediumship is trying to uh, rethink propaganda as a kind of proselytization, uh, mediation as mediumship, and reception as ritual participation. Wonderful. How very rich. Uh, so now that we have a grounding, let's turn to the book itself. Uh, your first chapter concerns nation building in post-1949 China, which you describe, and I'm taking this right from one of your subheadings, uh, weaving human media networks. What is the role of the human agent in China's socialist media infrastructure? And how does the idea of human as media intervene into our understanding of both Chinese media practices and media theory or media history more generally? That's cute. Yeah, so that's one of the ambitions of the book, right? And what actually brings together these two central concepts of cinematic realism and mediumship is the centrality of the human in these media and propaganda networks. Um, I mean, nowadays we talk so much about technology and um AI as well as that uh, sort of where is then the human. Um, but um, in guerrilla warfare, for example, the human as opposed to the machine was quite essential uh, because this is a, a kind of warfare that can be conducted in any terrain and climate. Um, and then because like Mao's early writings were actually quite prescriptive for what happened after the, uh, the PRC was founded. So I was really turning to a lot of his earlier writings and rereading them as a kind of media theory, but maybe like a Maoist media theory. And uh, so uh, in his writing on uh, guerrilla warfare in the 1930s, talk about how every propaganda, how every um, guerrilla company has to have a mobile propaganda unit so that they can recruit more guerrillas on the ground. Even earlier writings, like the famous um, 1927 Hunan Peasant Report, he talked about um, the human mediation propaganda over any kind of technology, right? So he said political slogans have grown wings and have found their way to the young, the middle age, and the old, uh, mostly penetrating people's minds and on their lips. Um, and then you can see this kind of, I, this idea of humans should be the mediators of propaganda in all these films were being shown whether, you know, oftentimes uh, children are the ones who are guarding the um, the village and then they are creating this alarm system um, by uh, notifying each other or alarming each other. So it's really the, the human body and human mind that or human agents who are serving, who are sort of manning the whole media infrastructure. And so um, uh, one example I use is actually from a 1958 film, The Hero like little gorillas um, or and uh, and it's about like these children who are trying to help the people's liberation army soldiers um, um, in in a battle um, by repairing telephone lines uh, when they are they're bombed by enemy troops and then one time the enemy troops uh, when the uh, when enemy bombing had um, dis uh, destroyed or exploded a telephone line, and it was not long enough to be sort of tied together, so the children were holding hands and then connecting, uh, sort of serving as a conduits of um, the electricity so that you know the commander can actually say fire. And as as they're holding hands, you know, they this this becomes like um um a, a, a quite. A, 
metaphor for what I want to say about um, um, about like human beings as extensions of media infrastructure when there's not enough knowledge in place. So, uh, so um, as you probably know, that Marshall McLuhan, this foundational media theorist, <laughs> talked about how media is extensions of, and we have you know, guerrilla media networks turning humans into these flexible extensions of media infrastructure. So I think thinking very hard about what the role of human agency is inside these uh, technological infrastructures uh, is my hope of contribution to this field, I guess. Um, I, I can say more, but I don't know if we have time. Maybe we should... Well, let's, I mean, let's keep going in the same vein, Mm -hmm. because your second chapter is also really about the humans and the things that they carried, which turns us precisely um, to the guerrilla network, to the mobile projectionists. It also evokes, um, for some of us who may have come of age in the 1990s and had to read Tim O'Brien's Vietnam stories, which have the same title, really strongly, this kind of martial metaphor, right? Can you give our listeners a sense of what this job entailed? What did these teams have to bring with them? And how do they have to act their bodies right to stage these successful film screenings in the countryside yes indeed i'm, I'm so glad you also uh, i guess i i was also reading tim o'brien's the things they carried in the 1990s and i really loved that, that short story collection so the title um mobile projectionists and the things they carried was actually a tribute um, it was actually so response to a question that I got at a postdoc uh, interview of how, you know, what did people actually carry with them? So I kept on thinking about that question. Um, so chapter, this uh, second chapter is also asking, you know, who exactly are the projectionists? And uh, Chinese film history is often written in terms of, you know, different generations of directors, the most famous being the fifth generation. But what if, you know, we were to rewrite film history and ask uh, what are the different generations projectionists and how would that change our conception of, um, of film history? Um, so I, I really wanted to look at these different generations of projectionists and think about their different backgrounds, recruitment process, and career trajectories. Um, and then it's the rest of the chapter that really unpacks the what they carried, what they did uh, specifically. So um, maybe I just sort of pick, I mean, typically, right, in the, from the 50s to the maybe mid-70s or so, movie teams consisted of about three members, uh, occasionally four, and later on, maybe two. Um, And they would share these responsibilities of transporting all the equipment, which included um, um, uh, generate power generators, because they're going to places with electricity, um, and and those were the biggest and most heavy, bulky parts. And oftentimes they had to um, also like cross rivers and um, uh, across really difficult uh, terrains, right? And then when they get somewhere, they have to hang the screens, so they also have to carry the screens. Then. Um, generate electricities, uh, something that many projectionists also did in the 1960s specifically was to uh, create slideshows uh, about local events. Uh, so when they arrive somewhere, they're supposed to go and talk to the local cadres about uh, what are their local priorities and what you know model figures they want to um, propagate. Um, and then they prepare a couple of relevant slides 
uh, so some of them actually chosen because of their artistic talent. So they are able to paint slides. My father actually um, uh, helped make some slides for the local projection team in the 1970s as well. And so um, these projections were essentially also a kind of correspondent. They were editors, they were writers, and um, they were also good at storytelling and singing. One kind of important, one really lightweight object they brought with them was the bamboo clapper, uh, which was uh, used for, you know, kind of making these um, almost like jingles or uh, very um, short, like pieces about local priorities. And so um, again, that, that was relevant to uh, wherever they're showing films. Um, and um, so um, I guess what example um, I, uh, one really fun story I came across is that even projectionists uh, who were not really good at drawing, they were producing interesting lantern slides. The one when they came to a um, a township that had um, that, that that was plagued by a new pest, they actually had they, they were asked to advertise a new insecticide. Um, and so they were trying to draw the insects, but they couldn't draw them very properly. So they caught some of them and then trapped them inside the uh, the slide projector, um, and then um, which also magnified them, right? And then the heat of the light bulbs agitated insects, which were still alive. So they were quite animated. And then the local agriculture technicians would explain the workings of the insecticide. Um, so these are some of the kind of work that they were doing that went far beyond just showing films. What a fascinating story. <laughs> um, so let's look at a specific movie team. You devote a chapter to the three sisters mm-hmm. who are popular as a model of socialist cultural labor, right, in the socialist period. Yeah. But you highlight the role of gender. Can you speak to the intersection of gender and the idea of the model that you explore in this chapter? Yeah, so here, so very early on in my research, I was just reading tons and tons of stories about um, projectionists, and a lot of them uh, were actually female, especially all female movie teams, uh, were very much emphasized in the um the publicly available materials from this period, and uh, and I found all these articles about a three sisters movie team, uh, or a three sisters projection team from Hebei Province, um, and they were also featured in a documentary newsreel. They were their pictures were on the China Pictorial Magazine, and there are all these beautiful propaganda posters that portrayed as crossing mountains and braving snowstorms, right, in order to bring films to the most remote villages. And um, and so I, I thought it's really interesting why are uh, women so prominently featured because in the actual interviews on the ground, when I tried to find theme projections, they were very rare. Um, it was uh, oftentimes in our initial meetings with um, projectionists, uh, it would be all men basically sitting around the table. So I was really actively trying to find women projections, but there are very few of them in reality. So I wonder, maybe, per, you know, my initial speculation was that um, female you know, there were female tractor drivers also uh, were featured on the Chinese money and um, also imposters, female pilots. So projectionists was also one of those um, mechanical, you know, it, it required mechanical 
to some extent the engineering skills and it's also physically demanding so it shows you know what men can do women can also do it sort of figures uh, the, the the figure of the prediction is really um uh, fitted very well into the state-sponsored uh, gender equality discourse and um and so um but in reality, I guess uh, in the reports also mentioned how female projectionists were able to get women uh, audiences to come out of their homes and actually watch films and become audiences of the state's uh, agenda, right? They, they brought women out into the public sphere. Um, so, uh, but I was very curious about this one projection team also because I found like they were, uh, as elderly women, they were actually interviewed in a TV documentary. So I thought maybe it would be possible to go talk to them. And then with the help of um, Professor Feng Xiaotan and two graduate students, um, so Li Hongyun and Hong, uh, Li Bingbing were working on really interesting projects of their own, but then they helped me with um, trying to find um, the, the original three sisters. They were, they're not actually sisters, the three women. Um, but when we got there, we got to the actual county, we learned that one of them had um, already passed away, another had moved away, and then the third one just didn't want to be interviewed. Um, and uh, But after we started talking to their colleagues, uh, we started to also understand why. Because the, the picture of the three sisters movie team that was in the um, in the historical materials, I guess we can say that propaganda materials is very different from how things were unfolding on the ground. Um, so I mentioned earlier the slideshows, right? So uh, the, the reason why the, this movie team was particularly famous is that um, they performed animated slideshows with several lenses. And so it was almost like animated films. Um, and so it's technically actually quite ingenious. And, um, um, and newsreels that we see really portray them as researching and writing and painting and performing the slideshows. But in reality, their colleagues told us that um, there's a whole creative team, like a lot of people participated and choreographed the slideshows for the three women to perform. They were kind of coached to perform them. But then the, the male colleagues were kind of the invisible green leaves behind the scenes, and the three women were the red flowers who were visible and then on these nationwide tours. And they were actually only responsible for showing films in near the county seat and not going into the mountains. But when the um, when you know journalists came and then newsreels came, when uh, they they had to stage these pictures of them, you know, ford fording a stream or lugging machinery on the donkey through these mountain passes. So, um, so a lot of the their colleagues were actually a little bit um, upset about. Um, you know, like almost like staging these images that were not true to to um, um, what what they were witnessing on the on the ground. So that's why they um, refused to speak to us. And uh, um, and and I think um, it. But at at some other level, though, they were also performers, and we have sort of some videos of their performances. With and in some ways, they were image makers in their own right. So, uh, so even Spiller at the uh, field work actually taught me something very important about uh, just not taking print materials for granted, and but rather to ask, you know, even 
um, photograph published in China Pictorial, um, um, for example, of a, a film screening in the middle of the night is the only good image you could get of a open air projection. But of course, that has to do with uh, the availability of like um, high tech cam cameras. And, whatnot. So, um, and, and it was also very carefully composed and staged. So it really, really, it also showed the value of doing actual field work interviews, uh, rather than just uh, using propaganda materials as the historical source. Um, but I, I did try to supplement also um, the story by many other ordinary female projectionists who were not so much featured in the press. And I found um, the role of gender there quite interesting, too. Um, for example, uh, several female projectionists, they couldn't uh, recall the films they showed because they said they were so focused on the machines. And so they really prided themselves on technical competence, which prevented breakdowns. Um, and they also gained acceptance and respect from their audiences because they were so well embedded in their local communities. And it's not so much due to the gender ideals that was um, propagated in, in the press. Thank you. Uh, you also discussed the model in the same chapter in terms of cinema and um, Brian Larkin's term, the poetics of infrastructure. Can you tell us more about how, as you say, projected images altered the physical environment? Yeah, so um, so in one of the, one of the interesting kind of poems that I came across by a projection team um, in uh, this is in the Hubei archives and uh, the, um, and it was written around 1974 and it was praising rural cinema saying the screen is projecting and radiating a new climate right and it changes the people and the land and boosts our yield uh, and this is actually quite uh, typical of a lot of um, discussions of the impact of cinema what difference did cinema make right and oftentimes it's about actually making changes to the physical um, environment and, and almost suggesting that cinema is not just a representational medium, but even a climate changing technology that can transform the, the land and agriculture output. Um, and so one way, um, what are the kinds of films that they praise? Uh, some of it actually not the safest site of Chernobyl. There are a lot of newsreels of Mao that um, supposedly enhance the people's labor productivity. And so um, in terms of the iconography of Mao, he's often um, compared to the sun. So the projection of newsreels almost like became like emissions of solar energy and the models who studied Mao Zedong thought are the solar panels that then absorb the sun's rays and then converted them into a kind of labor power right, to transform their physical environment. Um, but I, um, I, I was also looking very specifically at what are the kinds of models that uh, were portrayed in the of course, there are labor models, but most of them are actually like blueprints for infrastructure construction. So there would be, um, you know, like a couple of titles from the 1950s are, uh, uh, you know, titles like Moving Mountains and Filling Seas or Reclaiming Virgin Land. Um, like there were many films in the 1960s and 70s about this model village, Da Zhai, uh, which turned a very arid and uh, village into like a very place because they're making kind of rice paddies out of uh, mountains. And um, so so these films, in a way, served as blueprints for 
um, their audiences to emulate. And after watching these films, audiences, especially sort of led by their local uh, leader, village leaders, cadres, had to implement what they see on screen, right? So that altered the physical environment. But another kind of film um, that was sort of generated revolutionary energy um, were um, guerrilla war films that... Um, uh, try to inspire like self-sacrifice from their audiences. So there are some accounts, uh, for example, about how this is actually in the midst of the Great Leap Forward and famine um, around 1960, where uh, the conference for the rural cadres to verify um, uh, their harvests, whether you know they're properly reporting um, how much they had harvested. And then this movie team was showing them a um, a guerrilla war film called Five Heroes on Longyao Mountain. And it was supposedly reminded them that today's liberation is sanctified by the blood of revolutionary martyrs. So we can't think about our short-term gain and um, and then, um, you know, have to make self-sacrifices. And then Congress reported, the, you know, they said, oh, actually, we still have more grain. And they sacrificed them. They, they turned it over to the state. Um, and then um, under example that was much more prominent is kind of the mobilization of labor. So after film screenings, um, audiences would come up to um, the front and say they are vowing that they're going to compete with the gorillas on screen or they're create these um, so-called like um, shock battalions or tuji dui um, are named after the heroes of war films and they would pledge to you know do battle for days and nights and work without rest it's because um, revolutionary marchers they can die for communism so you know we can sweat for socialism as well so that was also another way that um, you know these kinds of war films are generating energy at the um, yeah at the um, grassroots level. Um, of course, this is all still uh, being reported, but you can sort of read that material against the grain and um, see in what ways, um, in, in some ways, audiences were pressured to make these vows and execute them after the film screenings. Right. Um, and well, now to a very practical question. I think we've been talking for the last few uh, questions about what many viewers will construe as very propagandistic uses of cinema and will assume, oh, of course, the state is sending all these people and doing all these things to propagate a message. But the thing that I think slips our minds often, and I, you gestured to it before, um, is the economics of cinema, right? Even socialist yeah. cinema is still an economic system. It's not just the case that everybody for free just shows up with this stuff and everybody enjoys it, right? Yeah. Um, so what can we learn about the economics of cinema going prior to the reform era, which is the 80s, right? Which is usually when we start to talk about the beginning of film marketization. Yeah, so uh, so the fourth chapter is actually really about the economics of social Socialist cinema, especially rural cinema, in terms of questions about what cinema cost and uh, who paid for it. Um, because initially, my assumption was that it was all free, and various nostalgic accounts also never mentioned um, having to pay admissions. Um, and uh, but as I was reading the film projectionist magazine, I was really struck by this obsession with collecting movie fees from the grassroots. And also in some of the interviews I had conducted with projectionists, they were all like doing the math for me of how much it cost for like how much they got paid. And then um, also uh, what they had to pay to for the film rentals and how much 
collected from the the communes where they were showing films. So I, I realized that this is actually a big issue, and um, and then the more I read about sort of the account of uh, both best practices and difficulties for film projectionists to um, collect, uh, so these um, um, you know movie fees or the from, from the from their audiences, uh, they they would say, you know, like a lot of villagers are very poor. They had very little cash in their pockets and they would rather pay for oil and salt and grain rather than this uh, cinema, which is a spiritual food, but it doesn't fill their stomach. Um, so they um, so they tried a lot of different things, and there are all these articles about what's the best way to collect movie, like to charge for cinema, and so um, they tried to have villagers charge for, for film admission with the eggs from their chickens, or you know, or take recyclable materials from the the, the village poor fabric, even like collecting manure from the farm animals uh, was another way to charge admissions and then the, the projection would sell them. So, um, but you know, they, they also tried individual ticket sales, which would be quite fair to have audiences who actually watch the movie uh, pay for them. Uh, but that really required enclosed spaces. Um, but a lot of the village courtyards were very small, or it's easier to to get in without paying. And local um, uh, the local uh, cadres who were helping to keep order often uh, would let uh, people that they knew uh, in without paying. Right? And so there would be big losses and even accidents um, when crowds would just come in. So projectionists, for the most part, um, resorted to like charging a flat fee per screening and just taxing it out of the collective budget. Um, and uh, so a lot of audiences were unhappy with that, too, because um, if they were trying to show films in uh, remote mountain villages and there are not that many people to begin with, the per capita burden uh, for every screening was much higher, right, than showing it in the in the central plains. And uh, projectionists also have problems selling unpopular films. So uh, I talk about like a, a one a kind of a playful concept that I develop here is village busters. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those are kind of films that um, they're not blockbusters, so they have to go to every single village. And there are two kinds of village busters, those that um, the officials say, the, the central officials say, like every village has to watch these films, uh, such as socialist education films. Um, and then there are films that audiences really wanted to watch, and these tended to be either war films or opera films. Uh, so sometimes there's a conflict between these types of films and um, uh, projectionists are required to show the socialist education uh, village busters. You know, th- there's a film like Li Shangshang, which is a um, you know, promoting gender equality, right? But somehow audiences didn't buy that and they, they didn't want to watch that. They wanted to watch instead um, this um, traditional opera film that was made in the same year called Monkey King Thrice Defeats the White Bone Demon. And so um, I, I, I guess it also betrays somehow like the, the gender ideology at the village level when they didn't quite want to watch those. And, uh, and then um, so... Um, projectionists had to come up with different ways sling films that were not necessarily popular. And in part, the development of various slideshows and also um, live performances was a way to make 
some more fun than just what um, what the central leaders wanted the people to see. Um, I mean, I think the last thing I want to say about the economics is it changed a lot over time. So the practices of the movie teams during the Great Leap Forward uh, was very different from, um, say, the Cultural Revolution period or even early part and the later part of the Cultural Revolution was, was very different too. Uh, and this also varied uh, a lot geographically, which is also why I wanted to do research in multiple locations and multiple provinces rather than just focus on um, uh, one site, right? Um, and so there's no really uniform socialist economics or socialist cinema and in this period. Great. Thank you so much for that uh, illuminating answer about the complexity, really, of that uh, cinema-going space uh, and experience. Uh, let's now turn to your chapter about hot noise or hubbub, I guess, if we want to use an English term, <laughs> yeah. of open-air cinema. Um, which you, uh, which has already become actually a kind of significant text for Chinese film studies as an article in Grey Room that you mentioned. Um, so first, though, I'd like you to explain to listeners what hot noise means and, of course, what that has to do with open-air cinema. But I'm also curious to know what other noisy cinema or unruly cinema cultural context mm -hmm. you might have encountered in your research and how they can be put in conversation with a socialist Chinese cinema. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I mean, this is one of those concepts that really just came into when I was interviewing many Chinese villagers about um, what they remember. Some, uh, initially, it was all about like which films, but then they couldn't come. Oftentimes, they couldn't come up with any film titles and talked about going to the movies as watching Renault, uh, which I uh, very literally translate into heat, uh, hot noise. And but what they're trying to suggest is that content matter not so much as the hustle and bustle of the of the event, right? And um, so it made me wonder about um, cinema as a communicator of propaganda messages, and then but also about noise, whether it's um, just um, whether our earlier conceptions of noise. So I'm using very literal translation for a reason, and I, I know it's not commensurate really with uh, Renal, um, but it's 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 one of those kind of commonplace that belongs to what uh, Svetlana Boyne would call like a dictionary of untranslatables. And so and some scholars just never translated, they call it Renal. Uh, but I, I got a literal translation from the religion uh, scholar, uh, Robert Weller, he he called Chinese popular religion a hot and noisy religion. Um, and I find that actually uh, to be productive in defamiliarizing the original and actually making us interrogate um, the, the sources and the effects of heat and noise. Uh, and I, I'm also very indebted to um, other, you know, um, anthropologists. Uh, Adam Chalper as a sociothermic affect um, and also pointed out that it's not just sound, right? It's also color and clutter. So um, it inspired me to do like a multi-sensory study of um, what um, uh, how cinema was experienced beyond the film text, and and this chapter uh, chapter five is divided into you know like sight, sound, smells, taste, you know, and um, and also touch, thinking uh, about the different parts of the body that was um, going to the to to the the movies uh, and receiving it beyond. Um, um, it's ideological messages. Um, and 
in in terms of um, noisy cinema in other cultural contexts, I, I think I can, uh, Brian Larkin's work he also mentioned that um, was was a great source of inspiration as well. He talked quite a bit about um, movie going in Nigeria, but also about the noisy aesthetics of um, of a pirated um, a VH, VHS tapes and video. Um, and then uh, there's another uh, several books actually about uh, cinema in India, such as um, Lakshmi um, Srinivas uh, wrote a book called uh, Houseful, Indian Cinema and the Active Audience, and it's about like attending Hollywood cinema. Uh, there's uh, also works on Japanese benshi or um, the narrator of films uh, was uh, uh, a source of inspiration to even like early cinema in, in the West didn't necessarily have uh, silent and passive audiences, right? So there are volumes on the sounds of early cinema and uh, um, also Yuri work on uh, the early um um, Russian cinema and its cultural reception. Um, so I, I, I really learned a lot from reading those early cinema histories um, and thinking about how they related to um, to Chinese uh, cinema at that point. Um, I had actually conversations with uh, Tom Genling about how much early cin- the, the scene of early cinema was um, was recreated in China in 1950s at a very different historical period. Great. Uh, so much comparative potential. Mm-hmm. Now let's turn to uh, another question, which is really more about the content of cinema. So if people are actually watching, right? So yeah. you devote two chapters to guerrilla cinema as something akin to a genre. Although of course, multiple genres would fit into this category. And you do this in the case of domestic and foreign films. So I have two questions um, and take your time in answering them. I don't want you to rush through. Uh, <laughs> okay. So first, what is the appeal of guerrilla cinema and how does it translate into revolutionary energy in real life? You've talked about that a little bit, um, but maybe in relation to this, uh, the the chapter that you've devoted to it. Um, And then second, circling back to a point that you already made in the introduction, you explicitly refer to third cinema, which differs significantly from socialist state cinema, but it still uses this idea of the guerrilla, right? And then Mm -hmm. later you introduce the foreign film as a significant primarily urban, it seems, entertainment for Chinese audiences. How can we understand socialist cinema in relation to transnational flows of films, film genres, but also ideas about filmmaking? Yeah, thank you. These are great questions. Um, yeah, so I because the I start off the second part of the book, which is about audiences as creative agents, uh, with the hot noise chapter, which is not about what's in the films, but the films themselves matter and putting forward this um, kind of meta genre, I guess, of guerrilla cinema um, uh, it, uh, it, to characterize like very popular types of films from the socialist period, um, including guerrilla war films, uh, spy thrillers, and also like bitter melodramas and white hair girl. And each of these genres or subgenres, I guess, they were promoting different things. And guerrilla war films was um, kind of militarizing the audience, right, um, in terms of the discourse, but also uh, thinking about um, kind of almost everyday life as a state of warfare. Uh, I mentioned earlier just about how labor mobilization was often taking place um, with um, uh, after screening um, but another example was um, like a, um, 
so in the 60s, actually, the, the People's Liberation Army, August 1st Studios, they were producing um, these uh, military pedagogical films, uh, potentially um, because uh, there was the Sino-Soviet split and it was a kind of war was never far from the horizon. And then so they were teaching the masses these guerrilla techniques. Um, so one is called man-mind warfare. Uh, and the other one, even more um, influential, is called tunnel warfare, uh, and so uh, showing how um, guerrillas in the 1930s were digging these networks of underground tunnels in order to, you know, um, outsmart the enemy. And, and this watched them two billion times from the 1960s to the end of the 1970s and had a pretty tangible impact in teaching audiences even to dig nuclear bunkers all over China because there's a movement to dig bunkers um, in the at the end of the 1960s and early 1970s, I came across a lot of interesting accounts about how to dig tunnels uh, by watching Tunnel War. Um, and um, yeah, so I'll just give that example. Many other really interesting examples, such, such as how like spy thrillers were trying to, you know, inspiring audiences to uh, be vigilant about potential class enemies. So, you know, um, they would spot people in the neighborhood who could potentially look like a spy, and then the children were spying on them. But then all of these genres were also uh, ambiguous enough. So, you know, you can identify with the police who were catching the spies, but you can also be identified with the spies, um, uh, you know, involved in the kind of the um, more bourgeois lifestyles that are being condemned by the films, but you can kind of watch these films against the grain, right? And so, um, so I think the pleasure of these films actually has to do with their ambiguity and the potential for subversive interpretations. Um, and I think the same might be said, actually, of Chinese uh, understandings of um, maybe popular foreign films, especially the foreign uh, in the Cultural Revolution decade, uh, because um, so there are not a lot of um, Chinese domestic productions were coming out besides the, uh, the film versions of the model revolutionary opera. And then there were many newsreel films that were being produced. But um, films um, such as um, there's two Soviet biopics of Lenin, especially Lenin in 1918 was screened over and over again. Um, uh, this was made in the 1930s. It showed in China in the 1950s and then was um, sort of um, those two Lenin films were actually um, the only Soviet films were still being allowed and, and also shown very widely. Um, and then uh, North Korean films were very popular too, and they tended to be tearjerkers or spy thrillers. Uh, the tearjerker one that everybody remembers is The Flower Girl. And uh, Mo Yan has, a, the, the writer Mo Yan had a very interesting piece about like why we were crying Flower Girl, uh, because he was watching it in retrospect and said, this is very formulaic and cliched, but why couldn't we stop our tears at that time? And speculations that we were crying for ourselves because the, the plight of the flower girl in someone's echoed the suffering of uh, Chinese people at that time. 
Um, and then, like, um, also popular were some East European cinema or um, so Albanian films were uh, popular as well as uh, so there were kind of age romances. One is called Victory Over Death, uh, and then it kind of featured a um, a guitar, which was considered a bourgeois instrument, but then it was revived as a result of this film, um, and uh, audiences were watching these films not so much for their revolutionary content, but for uh, what they offered that Chinese cinema did not. Um, and also discuss um, Indian musicals, such as uh, Awara, uh, which uh, many people actually related to the, um, in terms of um, the uh, a lot of the cultural revolution rhetoric. But um, in terms, you, you asked about cinema, and I this is actually something that I don't think my book has satisfactorily answered yet, and I would really be curious to see how Chinese cinema was interacting with um, um, both Latin American and uh, and African cinema. Um, because uh, what I found curious, which is that Chinese productionists they were showing films about guerrilla heroes, but that's when uh, Latin American filmmakers called for a guerrilla cinema um, in, in 1970, right, saying that uh, camera was the um, uh, was like a weapon and the projector is like a gun that can sh- shoot 24 frames per second. Uh, so a lot of the manifestos in this period focused on filmmaking, but they also talked about film projection as a kind of a liturgical act um, that creates masses. So there is a, a resonance in the rhetoric, but there's not actual much interaction between third cinema and social uh, cinema. So I'd be curious to see what other scholars will make of this in the future well other scholars you hear the (laughs) clarion call to write about this yeah Um, Yeah. so for our final question about the book um what is a criticism screening and how does attention to this practice of film consumption as a negative type of consumption help us better understand film and propaganda in china in the socialist period yeah, so the last half of the book is really about film censorship and criticism with um, a lot of focus on Mao's wife, Jiangqing. So for a while, you know, we, we know that many films are labeled poisonous weeds or duta, and they're banned during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, so I, I thought that most of those banned films were not shown for them. Um, as I was looking through um, historical materials, I was uh, really surprised to find that, you know, like Jiang Xing and Mao, they both called for public exposure of these poisonous weeds through screenings that also incorporated criticism in them. And they actually met with hundreds of millions of audiences, mostly urban, um, from the period 1964 to 1968. Um, and uh, so um, uh, actually had a very like explicit directive. And he said, like, don't even edit these films, don't sanitize them, um, and let them be exposed to broad daylight to receive thorough criticism. Uh, and and I was I became quite curious about this term um, poisonous weeds because a lot of the logic of exposing the public to small doses of poisonous weeds so that they can gain intellectual immunity like this is not just jumping but now sort of that uh, mirrors the the logic of vaccination which um i was writing this also in the midst of the pandemic so that might have affected as well but the idea of exposing um, small doses to the public and so that they can also recognize um the the counter-revolutionary aspects in their daily lives or so-called talks 
demons and snake spirits. Um, this is also very much uh, so. Uh, criticism screenings were also meant as a sort of exorcism right, of the counter revolutionary and of everything that are remnants from the feudal past. Um, but in reality, the criticism screenings were popular on the audiences who just um, were basically reinfected by all of the sentiments that they were supposed to criticize. Um, but practice of screening these films, you know, like students ha had received assignments to write film criticisms, and they also made all these loudspeaker broadcasts. Sometimes um, criticism screenings were accompanied um, actual struggle sessions, um, and uh, there would be like audience members who are planted in the audience to show um, so, so it's a again like a very. Um, it helped the um, the cultural revolution at some at the same time it was undoing it. Yeah, and and again speaks to how complex and not univalent it was actually at the time, right? This cinema mm -hmm. experience. Uh, so the final question, the classic final question of the podcast, uh, yeah. having completed this this massive work, what is your current project? So actually, I initially uh, was collecting materials, um, both in terms of archival materials and oral history interviews on um, uh, cinema, but also sound broadcasting. I realized actually many projectionists were also uh, involved with radio at their local um, broadcasting stations. And uh, so um, I, I, I already published one piece on this um, in 20th century China um, uh, called Revolutionary Echoes um, Radio loudspeakers in um um in the sort of around the cultural revolution period in social in the Mao era. Um and so I'm thinking of, I'm just so fascinated by this I'm thinking about expanding it into the next book project on noise um but also you know radio loudspeakers noise in uh, modern kind of, but dating back from the 1920s all the way to 2020 like the COVID-19 pandemic um because I'm hoping to tr uh, trace the transformations of, um, of listening practices over the course of the century. So it would, you know, begin with the emergence of radio and then end with the um, podcast during um, the pandemic. So that's the current plan, but I'm, it's a very, very preliminary project at this point. Well, we look forward to uh, reading it and hearing about it on the New Books podcast when it's ready. Thank you very <laughs> much you. for your time with us today. Well, thank you so much for all your thoughtful questions. I really enjoyed talking to you. Wonderful. Um, and to our audience, also, thank you for listening. Until next time.